It's so good to have you with us. If you're visiting with us, you can help us out a little by following the instructions on the screen behind me. That'll give us a record of your presence here. We're really honored that you're here this morning. Our lesson is entitled, These Aren't Visions of Sugar Plums. And we're going to be focusing on the four visions in Matthew chapter 2 that followed the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, last Tuesday I was watching the news and an anchor woman said, we're one week away from the day after Christmas. And her co-anchor started laughing. He said, I think that's the first time I've ever heard somebody looking forward to the day after Christmas. I hear people say, we're one week away from Christmas, or Christmas is almost here. But he said, I never heard anybody say we're one week away from the day after Christmas. And uh, this is the day before Christmas. And the whole world right now is thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ. And as uh, Brett said, we think about that frequently. We think about that every day. And uh, much of the conversation centers on Matthew chapter 2. But Matthew chapter 2 isn't really about the birth of Jesus. It's about what happened after the birth of Jesus. Let me get you to look at a few things in the chapter as we begin. Verse 1 starts this way. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This was after he was born. And then in verse 11, we read that the wise men found the child with his mother, and they were in a house. You, know, you see all these depictions of wise men coming to a stable, but they came to a house where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were a more established dwelling place than you see in the nativity scenes. Uh, more than likely, Mary did not give birth in a stable, and she wasn't in a stable here. She was in a house, in a dwelling, where you would expect a mother to be taking care of her child. And then when Herod realized in verse 16 that he had been tricked by the wise men, he in desperation, killed all the male children in Bethlehem from the ages of two and down. Now, why would he go up to that high an age if he was just looking for a newborn baby? Matthew chapter 2 is not about the birth of Jesus, but about events that occurred afterwards. How long afterwards? I don't know. But it is Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas, and a lot of parents tonight will be reading their children, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." And you know that line in the, in the poem, "'The children were nestled all snug in their beds "'while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads.'" And I don't know what a sugar plum is, and I've never had a dream about one. But I, I think it's a good thing, right? That's a good dream. It's a cozy scene that is painted by that little little poem. But you don't get that from the dreams that you see in Matthew chapter 2. These are very different dreams. If we were going to describe them, we might describe them as nightmares because this was a very difficult time in the life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all of Israel. And so we see this through these four dreams. And as we look at them, we're going to find three relationships to King Jesus. First of all, we're going to see the worshipers of the king. Secondly, we're going to note the opponent of the king. And then finally, we're going to look at the custodians of the king. So let's start with the worshipers of the king 
This would be the wise men. And these were men from the east, probably Magi, Zoroastrian priests who looked at the skies and watched the stars for signs. And they saw this star that led them to Jerusalem. Now, I don't believe this is God's way of telling us to believe in astrology. But what I think is happening here is that God used a sign that these men would definitely see. He was wanting to speak to them just as he wanted to speak to the shepherds. He got the shepherds' attention when they were out in the fields. He got the astrologers, these magi, he got their attention while they were staring at the sky. And naturally, he used a star. It led them to Jerusalem. And they came with this question before the throne of Herod the Great, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They said, We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And uh, the scribes gather together, and they, they give them this information from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which reads, as Matthew says in verse 6, You, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they were telling the wise men, according to the prophecies, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So they make their way to Bethlehem, and as they go, they see the star resting over the place where the child was. And they see it, they rejoice, verse 10, exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, Matthew says, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then they had a dream. This is the first of the visions. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Not a good dream, but a warning. Your life is in danger. Herod is not happy with you. Go by a different route. These worshipers of the king can serve as an example for us because they followed the light that they had. They didn't have a lot of light, but they followed the light that they had. A star is not a whole lot of light to go on. First, the star went over Jerusalem, and they had to inquire further. And they got a prophecy that told them to go to Bethlehem. And then the star brought them to the house where they were to go. And you see them just taking one step at a time, going by the little bit of light that they had. At the end of the scene involving them, they have a vision. Dreams are not a whole lot of light to go on. You just get images, pictures. Dreams can be very confusing, very difficult to interpret. But they were able to ascertain enough information to know that they needed to go out by a different way. It was a little light. And it was enough for them to take the step in front of them and then see where they were. And so I think we can admire these wise men for many reasons, but one is in worshiping the king, they, they went by the light that they had, even though it wasn't a whole lot of light to go on. We know far more than they do. Do we go by the light that we have? Just think about this by contrast. 
we know more about Jesus' life than they knew. Jesus had not even lived his life on earth yet. He was a child. He wasn't an infant, probably, by this point. He was a toddler. He uh, may have started to form some words, maybe not. But he had not lived his life. He was just beginning his life on earth. But we can look back through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can look through the light of the commentary and the epistles. We can look at his great victory in the book of Revelation. And we know the life of Jesus of Nazareth. We know what he lived for and the man that he became. We know his kindness, his compassion. We know how he helped others. We know his prayers. We know his suffering. We know the whole story. So much more than the wise men had. We know more about his mission. Did the wise men know what Joseph had been told in the dream in Matthew 1.21 that he would save his people from their sins? I don't know if they knew that. The Bible doesn't tell us they knew even that. But we know his mission. A mission of love. We know what 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, that Jesus loved us and came to be a propitiation for our sins. We know what 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, that He came to the earth to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. We are all sinners. He came to this earth for you and for me. That was His mission. I'm not sure the wise men even knew that. We knew more about it than they did. We know more about his love. We know the lengths to which it brought him. We know the suffering that he went through because of his love for us. We know because he followed through with it a higher love than anything in the world can show us. And then finally, we know more about his power. How could the wise men have known that they were falling down before the omnipotent power of God. How could they have known that? When they came to visit this little child, how could they have known they were at the feet of the one through whom all things were made? Do you think it could have... If somebody had told them, do you think they would have believed that? But we know His power. We know He made the world. And we know that when He was crucified, they laid Him in a tomb, and the grave couldn't hold Him. But three days later, He walked out of that tomb, and He ascended, and He is now seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. They had so little light to go on, but they went by the light that they had. Do we? We know so much about Jesus. Do we live by the light? the brilliant light that we have been given in our time. We can learn a lot from the worshipers of the king. Let's move in the second place to the opponent of the king. This is Herod the Great. He ruled in Judea from 37 to 4 B.C. Judea was controlled by the Roman Empire. So while Herod was a king, you might even say the king of the Jews... He himself was not Jewish. His ethnicity was Idumean, which is related to the Edomites, Edom being 
the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, the father of Israel. So they were somewhat related, ethnically speaking, but had through past times, from time to time, they had been enemies. So Herod was not a Jew, although he was ruling over the Jews, and he was a ruler in the Roman Empire. He married into a very well-known Jewish family, the Hasmonean family, and immediately upon marrying his wife and that family, he began bloodshed to kill off all rivals to his throne. I have a short list here. He put to death his two sons, Aristobulus and Alexander. He put his wife, Mariamne, to death. Antipater, another son, and once his heir. He put to death his brother, Aristobulus, and um, his mother-in-law, Alexandra, and her grandfather, John Hyrcanus. These were well-known Jewish leaders that he did not want as rivals. And so that might shed some light on his reaction to the question of the wise men in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now you imagine this tyrant who has murdered people to keep them from competing with him for his throne. And what is he going to do? What is his reaction going to be? Well, look at verse 3. When Herod hears this, he is troubled. And the word troubled means agitated on the inside. It's like his guts started moving around inside his body when he heard this. This created an intense anxiety in his heart. He was very insecure. And they were talking about a child, but it was enough to send him into a fit. And you'll notice he was not the only one troubled. If you finish reading verse 3, it says, He was troubled and all Israel with him. Now, were they troubled because they were bothered by the thought of a king being born? They weren't troubled by the king himself, King Jesus. They were troubled because they knew what their tyrannical leader was capable of. And they feared the violent measures that he would go through. And their fears were, were well placed. Because we read tragically in verses 16 through 18 that he slaughtered male children from the ages of two down throughout Bethlehem in an effort to eradicate this competitor for his throne. He was the opponent of the king. <clears throat> we hear about this kind of evil even today. We see these horrible images in the news about things happening in this same area today. And we wonder, how does this kind of evil happen? How do people become capable of this? Where does it come from? Why is it here? And I draw your attention to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let me say it again. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now the devil had staked his claim in this world. Jesus was being born into the world. Do you think Satan is going to take that lightly? 
He's a desperate, caged animal. He's going to fight with every fiber of his being. And that's why you see this evil break out. When something good comes into the world, the devil responds in desperation. Sometimes trouble is not deserved. Sometimes trouble comes because it's meeting, it's the opposing force to good. Opposition is often a sign that the enemy is being threatened. Why do you think there's so many fouls in the fourth period? Why do you think diplomacy is thrown out the window and all the missiles are aimed at the capital? Opposition can be a sign that the enemy is losing and getting desperate. And I say this to those of you for whom 2023 has been a particularly difficult year. I know there are a lot of you out there who've been through a lot of hard stuff this year. And maybe you've been tempted to think, this is a sign that I'm on the wrong track. Maybe you've asked the question, is God punishing me for something I've done? Maybe you're wondering, what did I do to deserve this? Have you ever had thoughts like that? I want to encourage you that bad stuff happening in your life is not necessarily a sign you're on the wrong track. It could indicate you're on the right track. Because if you start gaining ground for God in His kingdom, and you fall down at the feet of the true king, the counterfeit king is going to come after you. With all the desperation and all the might that he has, he will try to strike you down. But we know how the story ends. We know that Christ has already won. And we know the devil has no real power over us unless we give it to him. And so don't give up. Don't give in. Don't let hardship drive you down. Don't let it bring doubt into your mind. Don't let it attack your faith. That's exactly what the enemy wants. The opponent of the king strikes when the king comes to bring favor. Let's look in the third place at the custodians of the king. There are three points, four visions. So in this last point, we're going to cover two visions that relate to the custodians of the king. And by that, I mean Joseph and Mary the parents of Jesus. The first vision is in verses 19 through 21. And the first vision emphasized the Messiah as king. Let's read this together. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. You see twice there, Israel being emphasized. It was very important that Jesus be raised in Israel. Now why is that? God could have saved the world from any place on the map. Could he not have saved us from Egypt just as well as he could have saved us from Israel? Well, there's a lot of history behind these instructions here behind this uh, emphasis on Israel. And it goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of Israel, with whom God made a covenant 
to make him into a great nation and through his offspring bless all nations. All of this was coming to fruition when Jesus was born of Mary. Because Mary was a descendant of Abraham and Jesus was that child, was that son prophesied centuries before. He was the one Israel had been waiting for, the one the whole world had been waiting for. And so in this first vision, the message was get back to Israel, emphasizing the Messiah as king. But secondly, there's another vision that emphasized the Messiah as man, as human. Look at the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 22. But when he heard, when Joseph heard, that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, Herod had died, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Don't confuse the word Nazarene with Nazarite. Sometimes people think of the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. That's not what this is. This is Nazarene, meaning one who lives in Nazareth. Commentators have really struggled with this last statement by Matthew that this was done so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be a Nazarene, because there's no Old Testament passage that reads this word for word. You can't even find anything similar to it. I think it's important, number one, that you notice a departure from the way Matthew usually quotes a prophet. He'll say the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah or one of the prophets said, but here he uses the word prophets in the plural as if he's combining a lot of prophecies and themes from the Old Testament together. And he's saying there's a, there's a theme in the Old Testament that leads to Jesus settling into a place like Nazareth. And here's the theme, I'll give it to you. We won't go through all the cluster of Old Testament prophecies that say this, but here's the theme. The Old Testament said not only would the Messiah be a king, but he would be one who was rejected. He would be a man of sorrows. He would be one afflicted. He would be a humble person. He wouldn't break a reed. He would come in a gentle spirit. He would come in a lowly spirit. And he would be one like a son of man. And so he didn't rule from Jerusalem. He wasn't raised in the schools of the elite. He was raised by a carpenter in Nazareth. Do you remember in John 1 when Philip came to tell his brother Nathaniel, I found the Messiah? You remember the question Nathaniel asked? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What is Matthew trying to tell us? What is this dream saying? It's emphasizing this Jesus. He's not only a king, but he's like you and me. He's subject to the frailties of death. He's subject to the weaknesses of the human body. He can be hurt. He can be killed. 
Jesus was a human being. He came to earth the same way all of us did as a defenseless little child. And God charged Joseph and Mary to take care of him. They were the custodians of the king. And I think they're a good example for all of us. J.W. McGarvey wrote, To protect and rear at all hazards, that child was the work to which God had called them. And faithfully they fulfilled that heavenly trust. Mary and Joseph, however, are not the only parents who have been thus situated. Often it is that parents perform their greatest work in life by bringing into being and properly rearing a single child. If you've been blessed to be a parent, know this, God has given you a great task to carry out on His behalf. And it is a priority that you raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is so important for you to educate them, teach them the Lord's ways daily, to be a custodian of their soul, to discipline them, correct them when needed, to encourage them, to lift them up when they're dejected and discouraged, and to raise them as the Lord would have you raise them. In Malachi 2, God is rebuking the men of Israel for being unfaithful to their wives. And He's saying, this is one of the reasons for marriage, so that you can raise godly offspring. You know, Brett mentioned that nothing we own is our own. I think he said it's all on loan from God. That includes your children. They belong to God. He's entrusted something very precious into your hands that you're to bring up and mold for Him so that His kingdom will continue to flourish. And so parents, you have a great job ahead of you and you can look at Joseph and Mary as examples because they cared for Jesus and gave Him a home in Nazareth where He was raised. These aren't visions of sugar plums. They may be nightmares. These aren't the stories that get told around Christmas time. They're stories that occur after the manger. But they're so important for us to learn. These early years of Jesus teach us so much. And we see an example in the worshipers of the king who went by the light that they had, dim as it was who had so less than we did, but did so much more than many of us are ever able to do in our lives. We have the light of the gospel. Let's walk by it. Let's live by it. We see the opposition to the king. And we see the dangers warned in a dream to Joseph and Mary. Get to Egypt. Herod is coming for your child. And we see that opposition is not always a sign that you're on the wrong track. It can show that you're on the right track. And finally, we look at the custodians of the king and how they took Jesus not only to Israel, but to Nazareth and raised him there in that humble place, the one who would die for our sins and be raised to glory. And now the Lord asks, what is your reaction to the king? Will you fall down before him as the wise men? Will you oppose him as Herod? Will you treat him as a rival and try to oust him from your life? 
Will you raise your children up, as Joseph and Mary did, to be godly offspring in honor of the Lord? What is your response to the King? We're going to sing an invitation song. And if we can help you in any way serve this King who died for you and who reigns eternally, let us do so. Let us do it right now as we stand together and as we sing.